As I understand it from Father Albert, um, my invitation was occasioned by a seminar in which a number of you were privileged to participate, and he asked me to consider coming last semester to speak on the influence of the fathers of the church on St. On Thomas, which is a huge topic, and I suggested talking about the role of grace in the spiritual life specifically. Grace is still too large a topic to handle with integrity, um, but I... I, I I'll say a little bit in, in a minute about why I'm taking the approach that I am by really focusing more on conversion, the idea of conversion as we see it um, discussed in the confessions, um, but to defend the not only the presence but the value of Augustine um, as a really the primary source for St. Thomas. Um, Augustine is cited by St. Thomas more than any other author in his works except for sacred scripture, of course. He's cited more than 50% times, more often than Aristotle, who is a figure so important to Thomas that he is known to him simply as the philosopher. Um, So looking at the questions on grace at the end of the Prima Secundae, for those of you who were in the seminar last semester with Father Albert, um, Augustine is, his presence there and the interplay between Augustine's text and scripture is simply determinative and very obviously central. Um, I'll allude to certain texts of Thomas explicitly at the end, but most of the time I will spend with Augustine because my, as I said, the topic of conversion is my way into the vast question of the nature of grace. Um, And I picked the confessions because in thinking about the experience of conversion, um, Augustine gives us this disturbingly close it's a piece of literary art, of course, but he gives us a very uh, naked, so to speak, exposure into the state of his soul um, at every point. Um, working between Augustine and Thomas is a little tricky, though. You'll notice that Thomas very rarely pays any attention to confessions. He's always citing works that were more relevant in theological controversies at different times in Augustine's life. But even more interestingly is just how different the genre of these two writers is Um, Augustine's Confessions is, in some sense, all about him. And I see the Confessions being used in university classes at a wide range of institutions. And many students who don't have much of a background in philosophy and theology can pick it up and really get into it and make sense of this text. Um, Thomas is not like that at all. And many people who think, this is going to be great, get about three questions into the Summa. And anyway... Are, are feeling a little bit sad. Um, he's just not as intellectually accessible, and this is partly because Thomas writes texts like the Summa Theologiae as a kind of basic manual of theology designed for well-educated Dominicans, preparatory to the real work of theology, which is the study of sacred scripture. So the basic manual of theology thing is the really depressing part. Um, the question-and-response format of a text like the Summa Theologiae, as many of you know, reflects the rigor of the medieval classroom, uh, which was very high. And it's also worth noting just how much Thomas's theological writing is not about him. Uh, from Augustine, we have a vast collection of letters, historically and theologically invaluable. From St. Thomas, we have only one letter from Leighton's life, and this one letter deals with a textual difficulty in Gregory the Great's commentary on Job. So he's not a guy. Theology's not all about him. But I think it's important um, in speaking of these two theologians 
to consider Joseph Pieper's approach to this question of how Thomas writes, um, because I think he's exactly right in explaining Thomas's narrative modesty um, by appealing to his virtue of courage um, for truth, but also his virtue of humility as a servant of the truth. Pieper says that Thomas is truly disinterested and he studies with a purity of love that reveals that he wants nothing for himself. Um, Augustine wants a lot for himself when he's 12, 18, 29, um, and he doesn't hide that fact. Um, but the advantage of working with a text like the Confessions, as I say, as I've said, is that he really puts some meat on theological bones, and, and we need the meat, we need the flesh. If we're going to reflect theologically, but also in a way that's realistic about what the challenge of the spiritual life is like. And that ultimately was the end point of my back and forth with Father Albert, is that he wanted us to have a a theologically informed discussion about some interesting aspects of the contours of the spiritual life, which is very complicated, and it's not easy. And Augustine's all about not easy, and I don't hide the fact that I love that about him. Okay, so what I'm going to... When I talk about grace and conversion, there's usually two terms that Augustine Thomas use with varying degrees of precision. Um, and the, the term conversion describes the interplay of these two terms or senses of grace. Uh, first of all, just to be clear with my terms again, um, grace is a gift or a form that is freely given to a person. And grace is also described as a movement or a motus. I'm going to sometimes give you Latin words, not because I assume that you all are lovers of Latin, but, you know, based on our, your knowledge of, of uh, English and the Romance languages, sometimes the Latin terms just give you, as many of you know, some insight into why this term is an, an interesting term. So grace for Augustine and Thomas is a kind of form, and, and baptism or ordination is also talk, spoken of as involving the conferring of a form. And what, it, what is meant by that is very hard to think about, but it's something like a character that is given to a person, and then it's how one enacts it or acts out this new character that is given to you then brings forth fruit that reveals the presence of that form. On the other hand, grace is a force or a movement. It sounds a little more violent, um, and Thomas will use words like virtus, which could be translated as power or force. Um, When Thomas says that, that grace is like a movement, what he means by that is that God, in speaking of grace, enters into the natural dynamic character of the appetites and the desires. And he works with the way that we are structured in relationship to the world through our appetites. So that smells really good. Thankfully, I just ate, so I'm not going to go for your food. But, you know, just the way that things attract us and, and attract and move appropriate appetites, that's what Thomas means when he talks about grace as a movement. That excites my appetite. That looks good. Grace works in a very similar way. It, it, it moves us internally by shaping our will, but also moves us from, from without. Okay, This is a very easy, common point between um, Augustine and Thomas. Okay, So what I want to do, just having said what I'm going to do, that is talk about confessions, A, B, focus on conversion as a very human experience, um, and then C, I've given you just two basic terms to keep in mind. 
Um, I wanted to start by reading these texts from the Confessions. Um, I, I messed these, I, I sort of chopped off little bits, and I hate to do that, but... Um, so these, these texts, Confessions was written sometime after the events that are recorded in the Confessions, and he's very open about the fact that his work is a piece of literary art. He's not going for historical accuracy, although there's a great, a high level of historical accuracy. But he's very clear that, to him, confession should be public. It should be for the church. And in, in, in many cases, it should be said out loud or even sort of has a dramatic character. And I chose texts from three different points in the confessions. One from the hardest point in his life when he was a university student about uh, that's the first one. Then one from Book 8, which is immediately at the time of his official conversion, so to speak. And then a third one from Book 10, when he's like done with that, good to go, good with Jesus. Now, I just want to just reflect for a minute about what I am right now, not what I was in the past. Okay, so what, I, what I'd like to do is maybe just read these three texts um, and give you just a few the, as little context as possible, uh, and then I'll, I'll talk about why I've chosen these three texts as a way to talk about conversion. Okay, so text number one. At that time, Lord, where were you in relation to me? Far distant. Indeed, I wandered far away, separated from you, not even granted to share in the husks of pigs whom I was feeding with husks. Wretched man that I was, by what steps was I brought down to the depths of hell, there to toil and sweat from lack of truth? For I sought for you, my God. I confessed to you who took pity on me, even when I did not yet confess. In seeking for you, I followed not the intelligence of my mind, even though you were more inward than my most inward part, and higher than the highest element within me. But I was unaware of the existence of another reality, which truly is. Is justice liable to variation and change? No. The times which it rules over are not identical for the simple reason that they are times. And I kind of cheat and jump to a text that's related to this in Book 4. I had become to myself a place of unhappiness in which I could not bear to be, but I could not escape from myself. Where should my heart flee to in escaping from my heart? Where should I go to escape from myself? Things rise and set. In their emerging, they begin as it were to be and grow to perfection. Having reached perfection, they grow old and die. Not everything grows old, but everything dies. That is the law limiting the being of things. Do not be vain, my soul. Do not deafen your heart's ear with the tumult of your vanity. Even you have to listen. The word himself cries to you to return. There is the place of undisturbed quietness where love is not deserted if it does not itself depart. Surely I shall never go anywhere else, says the word of God. Fix your dwelling there. Okay, so maybe I should have made my contextual comments first, but in the third book, as I said, he's a university student, and he's turned a corner because... He has just read this book by Cicero that talks about the nature of philosophy, and he's like, it's great. Like, There's something in here about wisdom, and I feel like God is starting to turn me. And that's when he, he uses the word convert in Latin several times. Um, but then he has this experience, and 
and this is Augustine at his darkest in a way, not everything grows old, but everything dies. Um, it's true. I'm going to read on to the, ne- the next few texts, and then I'll go back and talk about each of them in turn. Um, but the second passage from Book 8, um, many of you are probably familiar with this famous scene of his conversion, properly speaking. Um, at around this time, when Augustine was writing this, he was starting to study the letters of St. Paul a great deal, and you get a lot of this in that text, especially the epistle to the Romans. Um, and there's a lot of allusions, you know, Augustine's in a garden, there's a tree, there's many literary allusions and theological allusions to Genesis, Nathaniel, who is called by Jesus in the Gospel of John, um, and other biblical um, other biblical scenes. But you'll notice that in all of these passages, there's an allusion to the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. Which I assume that you're all very that you're all familiar with in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so here he is at the moment of truth. Um, what is wrong with me? The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. He cries for about five chapters. I did many actions in which the will to act was not equaled by the power. Yet I was not doing what, with an incomparably greater longing, I yearned to do. The willing is not wholehearted, so the command is not wholehearted. The strength of command lies in the strength of will, and the degree to which the command is not performed lies in the degree to which the will is not engaged. So the will that commands is incomplete. The mind is weighed down by habit, consuetudo. So if you're interested, um, take a look later at Romans 7 or right now. I mean, you'll hear echoes of St. Paul's account of the divided will there. The good that I know I should do, I don't do it. I just don't do it. But he goes on, he says, I was now putting these questions very half-heartedly. Lady Continence offered numerous good examples for me to follow, and she smiled on me with a smile of encouragement, as if to say, are you incapable of doing what these men and women have done? Do you think them capable of achieving this by their own resources and not by the Lord their God? Their Lord God gave me to them. Why are you relying on yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Cast yourself upon him. Do not be afraid. He will not withdraw himself so that you fall. Make the leap without fear. He will catch you and he will heal you. Okay, and the third and last passage from the Confessions is from Book 10. And as I said in this book, he turns to consider the human person in his own instance, that is, about its abiding condition after baptism, after a sense of completion and conversion. Um, And this is a very famous text right at the center of Book 10. Okay, Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. So he's addressing God as beauty. And see, you were within, and I was without, seeking you in the world. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely, created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they would have no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent and put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath, and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel only hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, 
and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. I don't want to read it, but then you see the line that comes in the next paragraph. So he's not done, not by a long shot. Okay, so while the context of each of these passages make clear that Augustine is undergoing progress in the life of faith, at the same time, the first thing you could notice is there's a lot of repetitiveness uh, of themes and of images, a sense of distance from God, including a sense of personal responsibility for this state of distance. Augustine share, um, shares with the reader insight into the radical difference between the peace and the reliable character of God, uh, divine providence, as opposed to the variety and mutability of the human condition. And finally, as a third recurring theme and image in all these passages, um, a growing sense that spiritual and moral victory will somehow involve Augustine getting out of the way. So as to the first theme, so just keep in front of you, please, these texts. If you look at the first text, I, I, Augustine is clearly identifying with the younger son in the prodigal son parable. Augustine has taken, he's seized ungratefully the substance of his inheritance. This involves both deceit as false judgment because in the parable, by asking for his inheritance, the son is effectively saying to his father, you're dead, which is not true. But much more importantly, the son fails to acknowledge that what he is and has is a gift received, a gift from his father. Following these two errors, we see what transpires is a life of not only dissolution, but deep unhappiness, even just in the form of dramatic hunger that sends him home looking for a job. Augustine is miserable. His melancholic observation that not everything grows old but everything dies is clearly profoundly true. He says this because he's mourning the death of a beloved friend and beating himself up for mourning that friend as though his life were something more than the life of a creature. Things do pass away and die, and it is the unreasonableness of Augustine's experience of trauma that leads him to consider that he has failed to love his friend in the way that he ought to be loved. This is a profoundly relatable and human moment, for we too tend to be unreasonable in the face of the things in our life that, event, that evade our accustomed sense of mastery. Augustine accuses his own heart of vanity. Vanitas literally means emptiness and a tumult. By contrast with the noise and distress in itself, he speaks of the abiding love of the word of God, which proposes undisturbed quietness. It is important to understand here that Augustine is actually not just beating himself up. He's not critiquing his sense of loss. He's not saying friendship is not valuable and essential. Rather, we're supposed to compare Augustine to the younger son in the prodigal son parable. We're supposed to wonder if Augustine's love for his friend was akin to the younger son's seizure of the substance of his father. Perhaps Augustine did love his friend with a self-serving and grasping love. The love of Christ the Word is presented by contrast as a free gift. Now, in the second passage, Augustine's distress is again analyzed as a form of difference and dissolution. He's falling into multiplicity without an ordering center. Here, the situation, though, is internalized. It's given a more psychological form. In, um, as I said, according to Romans 7, the lack of basic self-mastery. Augustine makes clear that he is beyond the errors that he was rife with in book three and four, the errors of the Manichees. He doesn't blame his lack of self-mastery on things. Creation is good. 
things aren't evil because they move me to do bad things. He also considers that maybe he has two wills within himself which want different things, but he rejects this option as well. And that's one way of reading incorrectly, but it's one way of interpreting Romans 7 and 8, right? There's like another law in my members, and I don't have control over it. He says, that won't, that won't do, because if I have a different will within me, then I'm not really responsible. He says, there's one will, and it's a power of his soul. Even worse for Augustine, he knows he solved, solved all those questions that, that he struggled with back in book three. He says, my perception of the truth was no longer uncertain. He seems to know what God is, but some habit binds him and drags him down. This is associated again and again by, with fear, and fear combined with habitual sluggishness that binds him to his usual routines. He uses a great deal of temporal and spatial language to describe his state as one of literally falling apart in time or a greater and greater sense of distance from God. So he speaks of hesitation, slowness, lateness, uh, being self-disassociated. So again, we have these sort of two themes of distance and dissolution. And the third passage from Book 10, this famous and beautiful hymn to beauty, it sounds awesome at first, but it's very complicated too, uh, because we have the mature baptized Augustine analyzing himself, and it opens by saying, late I have loved you. So it is a past tense form of the verb, but he is talking about himself now. Um, He says two essential elements, uh, pardon me, two essential elements are up front in this passage and in Book 10. Um, first of all, Augustine knows with great clarity for, that he alone is responsible for the feeling that God is very far away. And two, he's finally figured out that he can't fix the problem. Grace is finally allowed to have its victorious and primary place. And the life of conversion, though still a battle, can start to feel like something more like victory. And if you look back, there are allusions to this coming in the earlier passages. Um, So at the end of the first passage, you'll notice that um, he says, he alludes to the word of God, but not just the word of God in general. And that's a title that he almost never uses in the confessions, but he uses it three times in this passage. So at the end of the first passage, he says, do not be vain, my soul, so on and so forth. It says, the word cries to return. There is a place of undisturbed quietness where love is not deserted if it does not itself depart. Surely I shall never go anywhere else, says the word of God. Fix your dwelling there. So, But the key thing there about what the word is doing is the word is revealing itself. So there's an allusion in this early text to Augustine's own sense, writing the confessions, that God is at work and God is revealing himself to Augustine and that this is somehow going to be essential. Uh, In the second passage, um, I love this part where he says, Lady Continence, and he says, I imagined her, you know, talking to me in this way. And it says, she smiled on me with a smile of encouragement. Um, But I think she's being kind of saucy there, too. It says, are you incapable of doing what these men and women have done? But then this question is completely dismissed, and a totally different question is asked. Do you think them capable of achieving this by their own resources and not by the Lord their God? Those are totally, you see those are completely different questions, okay? One focuses on 
do you really think you can't do that? And then saying, they can't do that, not by their own resources, but they can if they depend on, on the Lord their God. Um, and then by the end of it, she says, in this passage, she says, why are you relying on yourself only to find, well, you're unreliable? Are you really that surprised that you can't count on yourself? So she's being tough on Augustine, whoever this lady is. Um, but here, too, in this passage, much more clearly, she says, make the leap. He will catch you and heal you. So there's a cult of faith, but there's a cult of faith precisely because the essential work has already been accomplished, or you don't have to do this. You can't do it. Okay. Uh, and then coming back again to the third passage, Augustine makes clear that grace is going to be absolutely primary in the spiritual life with this beautiful language he uses of the spiritual senses. And you notice the, rep- the repetition of the second person uh, verbs. It says, you know, you called and cried out loud, shattered my deafness. You were radiant, you were resplendent. And if you look at, even in the English or in the Latin, it, um, the verb is, in this case, is placed at the start of every sentence. And it's very repetitive. Um, I feel like I wrote it down, but I'm not seeing it here. Um, anyway, it's the... It's just there's all these easty verbs at that's the ending of the verb and they repeat it over and over again and it's very violent and he's describing God doing something to him in um, a, very, a rather violent way calling and breaking through and and overwhelming with light but then when you get to the end of this beautiful passage it says you touched me I'm set on fire to attain the peace which is yours so God is doing something Again, violent, beautiful, loving, gracious for Augustine. But the end of it is having some taste, some intimation of the peace of the divine life. Okay. Okay. He's not at peace when he writes this. And you go to the next chapter in book 10. He's like, oh, I'm still having dreams about my girlfriend, even though I'm a bishop. And uh, by the end of book 10, he says, not only do I still need my memory, you know, to be purified and this and that. He gets to the end of the book and he, he starts to talk about a really, really difficult problem, which is the, for him the problem of what he calls vainglory or praise. He says, when I preach a good sermon, people come out, slap on the back. He's like, doing the Lord's work. It's like, what happens when that doesn't happen one Sunday? He says, of course, I'm like, did I do a bad job? Or am I, am I really just anxious because I'm not getting the praise and affirmation that I need? Okay, so he's not at peace yet, but something essential has happened here as a result of his conversion, and it is all about what we would call the primacy of grace, the sense that I can't fix this problem. I can't always know when I'm looking for affirmation or confirmation, right? But I know that God has and is accomplishing what is absolutely essential in me, and God helps me, and God is generous. Okay. So, shifting away from these texts a little bit, though don't put that away, in Augustine, he wrote many, many, many works on grace. I just want to start to shift a little bit, somewhat in the direction of Thomas. (coughs) When Augustine unpacks what these tools of violent, as I'm calling it, divine love, um, what they actually are in their substance, Augustine will usually describe grace um, with the image of light or illumination. And as I said with regard to the idea of form or movement at the start of the talk, um, this light acts directly on the soul and its capacity for truth. 
But grace also works on us indirectly, he says, through the pedagogy of revelation and history, the law, the saints, the example of Christ. Okay, but that's only half of the picture um, because grace is not just this intellectual illuminating principle. Grace is also a form of charity or love that is associated with the Holy Spirit, and it literally inhabits a person and heals and gives life. And I think that sense of indwelling gift makes a lot more sense of the language in Confessions, Book 10, of God sort of going at his soul with beauty and violence, so to speak. Um, These two aspects of grace um, are very close to what Thomas means when he talks about grace as a form or habitus and grace as movement. Um, But the primary thematic parallel in these three passages from Confessions is the sense that what grace is is the consistent, reliable, and unchanging will of God which never ceases to have one plan for Augustine, and by implication, one plan, one intention for everyone, and that is faith and life in God. From the side of the cause, or the perspective of the cause, the action of grace is one and the same always. Um, This movement Augustine describes, and Thomas takes us up, is one that enters into us and it directs our will to God as end, and that's what the word conversion means for Thomas Aquinas. It is for the will to be turned to God as end. Okay? And um, the key element, as I've tried to emphasize, is precisely the sense in which, insofar as his own sinfulness or weakness opposes God's movement in in the will, um, the key thing is Augustine feeling like he can actually get out of the way and let God finish the work that he has actually begun. And this is often called the initium fidei, or the first moment uh, of faith, that, that moment where one decisively gets out of the way. Uh, and I think, again, this third passage from Book 10 of the Confessions is something like the beginning of faith, even though this is, written, this is recounting something long after Augustine, or somewhat long after Augustine is baptized. Um, I think it's also worth noting, though, that this passage also sounds like some of you are probably familiar with some great mystical writers. It also sounds like a description of mystical union. Uh, think of St. Bernard of Clairvaux writing his homilies in the Song of Songs and the, the union of love between Christ and the soul. Um, and that is what Augustine and Thomas as well really see the experience of faith as being. It's God entering in and being married, as it were, to the soul. Um, but this, this, is ulti- this is the final, really the first and the last essential point for Augustine that Thomas takes in its entirety, which is, it is first God, and is always God that acts first and gives the gift of faith as a response to grace. So a lot of people still say, this has happened more like eight years ago when I first taught the seminary, are you Thomist or are you an Augustinian? Um, and one of the ways that people think Augustine Thomas are really at odds is precisely the significance of the idea of God moving the will. Um, And so the first point where I think Thomas and Augustine need to be understand is very much on the same page is this idea that grace works at its most fundamental level in and through the order of nature. Okay. So as Thomas understands it, our will is naturally ordered to the good, to appropriate goods as I illustrated with this good-smelling food beside me. Um, And 
our will is ordered to appropriate goods and God is the greatest good of all goods. That does not make any of the particular goods into anything divine, but this is just the way that we're made. Okay, we're sort of constituted this way in the order of nature. And if that's unclear, um, I, you can ask Father later to, to explain that in a more coherent way. Um, when Augustine and Thomas talk about a vocatio, a call, or a call from God that generates conversion, they both say very clearly that this call is a gift that is based on absolutely no merit of our own. But that doesn't change the fact that in some sense the call of grace is not sort of founded on the order of nature itself. Um, if you uh, look, for example, um, you see this in parts of Confessions, um, but just the very biblical idea that um, Thomas alludes to many times in the questions on grace, that man and man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God. And this is confirmed, what that means is confirmed by the end of Genesis 1 with the idea of the Sabbath, that, that humans are made for praise and worship of God, but also for communion, for life with God, for fellowship. The effect of sin is to remove the way things are supposed to be, or to change the way that things are supposed to be. And Augustine describes the effect of sin as an aversio, a turning away, as opposed to a conversion, a conversio. Um, and this is seen, the evidence of this is seen in the will or the desires, which when they are deformed, get lost in the beauty of things and, and, and the intellect that loses its ability to judge things well. And this is why Augustine speaks again and again of this experience of feeling far away from God and distended from God, because the effect of sin in the soul is this sense of a broken communion with God. Um, my point there is that, you know, if you look at this uh, by comparison to Thomas, that very first text, Thomas as well says here, look, in the state of corrupt nature, man falls short of what he could do by his nature. So he's unable to fill it by his own natural powers. That might sound like, that might sound strange at first. Uh, but what he's saying is that the way that we experience the burden of sin right now is not our natural way of being. This is not how things are supposed to be. We are supposed to be ordered in our nature to communion with God. Okay, Both Augustine and Thomas, so this is where people tend to oppose the two of them, and I think that's mainly because of the history of, of reception and use of Augustine during uh, the Reformation. Um, Augustine and Thomas are very much on the same page here. But focusing a little bit more on the Thomistic text there, he says, um, you know... Uh, here. Thomas compares the natural state um, under sin to a kind of sickness. And it's, he says it's very important that, yes, under sin, or when we're sick, we can do all sorts of things. We can brush our teeth. We can make some movements. What examples does he give? Um, we can build dwellings, plant vineyards and the like. But when we're sick, when we are wounded, we cannot do everything. That is, we cannot do every natural good that we have a natural capacity to do. Uh, we can do a few things that are good, absolutely, but we can't do the good that we were made to do. Um, it says, it, it says, Thomas, um, if you look at the form I put in the Latin there, the, the passive form of movement, at the end of that quotation he says, we can, a sick man can make some movements, yet he cannot be perfectly moved with the movements of one in health. 
unless by the help of medicine he be cured. So what Thomas is making clear that here is that in the state of creation, man was in a state of openness to being moved by God to do the good. Okay, so it was a state of constant dependence and openness to God. Okay, so grace that heals and corrects sin is not for Thomas plan B. This is another interesting misreading of Thomas. He's often compared to Scotus here. God did not plan the incarnation. It was sort of a second plan or a last-ditch effort. Thomas is saying here, no, like in a certain sense, from the perspective of how nature should be, okay, God is fixing things by giving the gift of grace. If you look at the second text, uh, that says Article 5, you can see, um, hence man by his natural endowments cannot produce meritorious works proportionate to everlasting life. For this, a higher force is needed. So this text suggests that non-openness to God can only be corrected by a firm and clear divine initiative, the virtus or the force of grace itself. If Augustine at times does seem to be a little bit more um, cautious than Thomas about the ambiguity of created goods, by contrast, the incomparable beauty of God, the third text there, Article 6, illustrates very clearly that God works in a general way through the created ordering of the will to the good, and that this ordering of the will to particular goods can be described as a mode of conversion. Still, for Thomas, it is clear that nature in this case is ineffective to attain its good end. So just looking at part of this text, it says, we must presuppose a gratuitous gift of God who moves the soul inwardly or inspires the good wish. For in these two ways do we need divine assistance. Now that we need the help of God to move us is manifest. For since every agent acts for an end, this is a beautiful, clear, Thomistic argument, but I'm going to skip all that. Um, And he says... um, about halfway down, it is by his motion that everything seeks to be not just moved, but likened to God in its own way. Hence, Dionysius says that God turns all to himself, but he directs, converts righteous men to himself as to a special end which they seek and to which they wish to cling. And that they, and that they are turned to God can only spring from God's having turned them. Now, to prepare oneself for this, for grace, is as it were to be turned to God. Just as whoever has his eyes turned away from the light of the sun prepares himself to receive the sun's light by turning his eyes toward the sun. Hence, it is clear that man cannot prepare himself to receive the light of grace except by the gratuitous help of God moving him inwardly. So I don't know if it's clear there what he's saying, but I suppose the third and last incorrect contrast sometimes made between Augustine and Thomas supposedly is that Augustine has this dramatically strong doctrine of grace till God gets things going, God help you, in in the bad sense, okay? Um, Thomas is very clear here, whether he's speaking about merit, whether he's speaking about justifying grace especially, but, but, but especially when he's talking about preparation, which is what exactly what's happening, books one through seven of the Confessions, that even that preparation, even Augustine saying, I am miserable, not everything grows, but everything dies. Seek the dwelling of God. That is, August, that is a work of grace. or It is an effect or fruit of grace in the soul, in the life of soul. So I have, a, I have more stuff on Thomas, but I, I promise that I would not go too long. Um, so I, maybe what I'll just do is stop there with the observation that I think the practical takeaway from this sort of 
thinking of conversion as the dynamic of God working inwardly by like actually moving the will um, and, and God sort of giving graces, which are normally experienced sort of sacramentally through the church, but also are given in, in a more direct and personal way. Um, I would ask you to consider that sort of the, the common ground between Augustine and Thomas is that rather than seeing this strong doctrine of grace as either limiting or re- reductive of freedom or exclusive because it seems to be in some people and not other people, um, that we should instead read Augustine's confession as he intended as an illustration of the profound truth that God really does desire the salvation of all people. It'd be a hard time for that. And he never ceases to work at this, however absurd the heresies of our youth or however mean we are to our holy mothers. I'm alluding to Augustine being a bad son. And this should be extremely comforting. Recall that in all three of those texts from the Confessions and at Augustine's darkest moments, the fidelity of God had to become his true comfort rather than his praising of his own accomplishments or his limited progress. And this same sense of the radical and comforting primacy of grace is evidenced in just, I've really just started to scratch the surface there of the Thomistic text there, but you know the strength of that language of divine movement and that it comes first in the order of grace. But then when you go into Thomas's Christology and, and, and his understanding of how conformity in Christ works through the, the, the conformity of the will to... Um, to the will of Jesus Christ is just a beautiful treatment of how this actually looks and works out in the life of faith. I'm just going to stop there and see if there's anything that I've I've raised here this evening that you'd like to talk about more, especially at the sort of practical level of how grace is experienced in the life of faith.